Well, let's stay standing this morning as we read um, our passage. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 25. We're going to read the first 11 verses now, and we'll read the rest a little bit later. But um, as, we, uh, as we read this first portion, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's stand um, for the reading of God's word. Mark 11, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately, as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they said to them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is God's word. You can be seated. Let's pray this morning as we begin our time in God's word. Father, we do come to your word weak and needy. And yet, Father, we are grateful that you give us your word to draw our eyes to Jesus. So we ask that we, as we just sang, that you would help us to turn our eyes to him. You would help us to look in his wonderful face. And then as we do, Father, would you help the things of earth to grow dim? Would you please cause distractions to uh, grow dim in our minds? Things that are demanding our attention, Father, we ask that you would keep those at bay. We ask that your spirit would be at work as we do contemplate who Jesus is, who our King is. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, each year as we, uh, as we celebrate Palm Sunday, you may have heard this passage preached on before, this passage of Jesus entering into Jerusalem, as we'll read in a moment, entering the temple and uh, it's interesting, every, every year we come to this, every year that I think about this passage, we come against this really interesting reality. It's a very striking reality that God's own people, and even especially God's relig- those who were tasked with uh, teaching the people about God, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, um, had no idea that the king had just come into Jerusalem. They did not know who this man was. They didn't know that the Messiah had finally come. They didn't recognize him didn't know who Jesus was. And so as we come into this passage today, that's a question I want for all of us to ask ourselves, is who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who do you think that Jesus is? Because your answer to that question is going to affect how you receive him. Now today we're going to look at our passage, we're going to look at uh, it in kind of three different parts, three different descriptors of King Jesus that this passage is highlighting for us. And we're going to see as people, depending on what they think about Jesus, it will affect how it is that they then receive him. 
So first, we're going to look that Jesus comes as the king that we need, not necessarily the king that we want. That's first. Second, Jesus came to claim our worship. And finally, Jesus came to help us bear the fruit of faith. Go through those again. Jesus came as the king we need, not necessarily the king we want. Jesus came to claim our worship. Jesus came to help us bear the fruit of faith. It's my hope as we look at these descriptors of Jesus, we look at him come into his, his city, into his temple, and how people react to him, that we would be able to recognize him for who he is, which is as our Savior and as the King of the world. So let's begin with that first point. Jesus came as the king we need, not necessarily the king that we want. Now we're, uh, we're entering the book of Mark at uh, the, the end of Jesus' ministry here. He's been ministering for about three years, uh, and we're, we're coming at the end of it in Mark chapter 11. And throughout Mark's telling of Jesus' ministry, there's been this kind of interesting theme that goes through it, which is uh, Jesus is trying to keep people from uh, spreading uh, the news of what he's doing, right? So he... Uh, when he casts demons out, the demons know who he is. And he, tell, he commands the demons not to tell people who he is. When he heals people, he tells them, don't go and tell people that I did this. And many of them do anyway. But he at least tells them, don't go and tell people. He even tells the disciples that he speaks in parables for the purpose of, of obfuscating, of kind of hiding who he is in a sense. And we get to Mark 11, and the time for that, um, that secrecy is, is over. That, that is done now. It's time for the man named Jesus, the son of David, Jerusalem's rightful king to enter the city, not hidden, but out in the open. And so Jesus sends two of his disciples into the village uh, to bring this donkey, this colt that no one has ever ridden on before. I imagine that would have been uncomfortable for the disciples. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was playing laser tag with the youth group, uh, and I took everybody's coats out to the car when we got to the spot. And as I went out the front door, um, I walked right past a security guard with coats piled about this high, <laughs> and he didn't even look at me. So, <laughs> mm. uh, But I imagine the disciples might have felt something similar to that, right, as they were going and just grabbing this donkey that uh, they had no right, or they, they didn't seem to have any right to. Um, and yet, Jesus predicts exactly what's going to happen. And it's a, it's a relative to some of Jesus' miracles. This one can seem small, but it is important. He gives these disciples the instructions they need to bring the donkey back. Now, he was doing so to fulfill prophecy from the prophet Zechariah, who had prophesied about this moment many years before when he wrote this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And again, this is a relatively small one of Jesus' miracles, but it's important. As Jesus is entering his city on a donkey, we see these people begin spreading cloaks um, on the ground in front of him. They're, they're, they're putting palm branches down. The idea is to keep the dust from getting up into Jesus' face, most likely. And they're shouting these chants that sound quite, that they're from the Psalms. They sound quite a bit like they're chanting, cheering on the Messiah entering Jerusalem, right? It sounds like they're, they're praising a king coming in to the city. Now, if you are a history buff, you might know that this actually is not the first time someone had entered Jerusalem with people singing these Psalms and waving palm branches. 
Uh, because about 150 or so years before this, a man named Judas Maccabee led a revolt with his family against the Seleucid Empire. They freed Jerusalem, and as Judas came into Jerusalem, uh, he was greeted with people chanting and waving palm branches for him. The one who had kind of freed them from their oppression, they, they, they thought had freed them from their oppression to this, uh, to this empire. And now, in our story, here comes Jesus, but he's riding a donkey. As, as Matthew says, it's a beast of burden. Not a horse, it's not a chariot, which you might expect if you were thinking a Messiah was going to come in to free you from, not the Seleucid Empire, but the Roman Empire in this case. This man is coming humbly, which I think is really quite remarkable. Jesus, uh, in a and when he performed this little miracle to have the donkey brought to himself, he was fulfilling thousands of years of prophecy. And he was doing so so that he could enter into his city on a donkey, humbly. Now, uh, there's going to be a coronation for a new king in London this May for King Charles. Um, and from what I understand, it's going to be very spectacular. There's going to be... Uh, Multiple processions, there's going to be a, a church service in Westminster Abbey. There's a, a massive concert that's going to take place. Uh, the Monday after, there's going to be declared a bank holiday where everyone's going to be supposed to go and volunteer in some way. Um, and you know what I can pretty much guarantee you? King Charles won't be riding on. He's not going to be riding on a donkey. Or maybe uh, a, a better analogy today might be like a tractor or something, right? Like a a vehicle of burden instead of a beast of burden. Um, but he's not going to be riding, most likely, on a donkey. He's probably going to be riding in something that carries prestige and honor, because that's kind of what we expect from an earthly king. That's not what Jesus did. That's not how Jesus came into Jerusalem. He didn't come to exalt himself. He came to lift up his followers. He came to lift up his people by his death for us. Jesus is a different kind of king. It's not the kind of king that many of the Jews were expecting. They wanted freedom from the Romans. Many of them thought the Romans, the Roman Empire, was their biggest problem. So that's what they thought the Messiah needed to come save them from. They thought the Messiah needed to save them from the Romans. And so most likely that's what's going on is they're spreading these palm branches underneath Jesus' donkeys. He rides into Jerusalem. They're hailing the king that they hoped would be like Judas, would free them from the Romans, give them independence back. Now, if Jesus truly is the king of all things, the king of the world, I'm curious, what kind of king do you want Jesus to be? What do you see as the biggest issue in your life that you believe Jesus needs to conquer, that you believe you need his help for? Think about that for a moment. What's the biggest thing you believe you need a king to save you from? Now, if your mind is going to uh, the circumstances you're facing right now, things going on in the world, maybe relationships, something that's outside of your heart, then it could be that you are in the same spot as these folks waving these palm branches. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, one, one easy way to spot this in ourselves is to think about, um, think back on what you often pray for. What do you ask God to help you with the most? And it's, it's certainly not wrong to ask God to help us with our life circumstances. It's, the, psalm is, the psalms are rife with this. Jesus will pray 
like this in a few chapters when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. But if we are always asking God to change something in our lives and almost never confessing our sin to him, asking him to help us throw off our sin, then it may be that we're falling into the same trap of looking for the wrong kind of king, not remembering what it is we actually need to be saved from. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, it may be that you look in Christians and you, you perhaps you get annoyed uh, with the focus on personal piety. Right? I've, as I've seen different people, a friend of mine wrote this recently, if you want to make a difference, get off your knees and go do something about the problems in the world. That may be what you're thinking. And, and there may be times when that's an appropriate critique. Uh, but the source of the problem, according to Jesus, for everything in our world is not a lack of activism. It's what's inside of all of us. There's something dark about all of our hearts that we can't fix on our own. That's what we call sin. And that's what Jesus came to address. That's what he came to save us from. Not what's outside of us. What's inside of us. And what we're going to see as we continue our services this week, especially on Good Friday, what we need the most for Jesus to save us from is the sin that is so deeply embedded in our hearts. And Jesus' actions are going to be very confusing if we don't see that as the main reason that he came. It's not going to make sense. When it appears today that he's not rescuing us from our life circumstances that we think he ought to, the, the circumstances we view as our biggest problems, and we may be tempted to walk away from Jesus or question if he's truly king, which is what these palm branch wavers did when Jesus was arrested. They were nowhere to be found when Jesus was crucified. Apparently, they, he couldn't save them in the way they were expecting, and so they leave him. So as we come back to our story in Mark, Jesus arrives at the temple. He looks around. Notice this in verse 11. He looks around, and he leaves, which is such a sad way for the temple to welcome the Son of God. It wasn't ready for him. There was no celebration, no coronation, no concert, not even a bed for him to sleep on. They didn't recognize the king. And so Jesus leaves and goes back to Bethany with his disciples. He came humbly, our king, not for acclaim or for glory, but he came to save us from our sin by humbling himself in this way. So let's move on to our second point. Jesus has come to claim your worship. Let's read. We're going we're gonna to read now verses of 12 through 19. So read with me if you have that in your Bibles. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it. 
and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Now you are probably thinking, or were at least at some point in there, what is going on with the fig tree? That's a good question. And so I think it's what we ought to be wondering as we get to this part of Mark's gospel. Because the, these two events, the Jesus cursing the fig tree and Jesus going into the temple are meant to explain each other. Uh, the, the fig tree, what, what happens to the fig tree and what happens to the temple are related. Um, and we'll, read, we'll, we'll finish that in a moment. But uh, this first interaction with the fig tree is rather confusing. Jesus is cursing the fig tree never to produce fruit again when he can't find fruit on it. <laughs> And what might seem a little odd is, as Mark goes on to tell us, it actually wasn't the time for fruit. It wasn't the season for fruit, um, which you might feel is a little unfair to the tree. Um, there, there was one biblical critical scholar, not a, not a Christian, who uh, I read this week who said um, that basically this, this did it for him, right? He can't get on board with a Jesus who would curse a tree like this, which I thought was kind of funny that that was the thing that did it for him, but it's not funny, but odd. But if you're feeling bad for the tree, remember Jesus made the tree, he gave life to the tree, the tree was going to die anyway, and he got to die by becoming, or it got to die by becoming an analogy for the fruitlessness of the temple. And that's really the key point. Um, the, 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 the tree is meant to symbolize, Jesus is using it as a picture to show the fruitlessness, the spiritual fruitlessness of the temple that he was about to enter. And so Jesus then does enter the temple, and we can see very quickly, he is not happy with what he finds. It's a really dramatic scene that Mark paints for us. Jesus begins flipping tables and chairs. It's not just the people selling he drives out. It's also the people buying things, which is important because it's tempting to think maybe this is just Jesus mad that uh, people are being extorted, right, with high prices, which, which likely was happening. But that doesn't sufficiently cover why Jesus was so angry here. And so if you notice, in verse 17, Jesus is actually going to say why it is he's angry. So look at then, look it down again with me at verse 17 if you have it open in your Bibles. <clears throat> Jesus says this, <clears throat> Is it not written, my house shall be a house, or shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. This is important for us to understand why Jesus was so upset. So, if you hang with me for a minute, I think this will make sense. We're going to uh, jump back in time to a prophecy, do a very brief architectural lesson, and I think it'll make a little more sense, perhaps, why Jesus is so mad. Um, so first, uh, uh, Jesus is quoting, he's actually quoting two different prophets here. We're going to look at one uh, right now. Uh, he's quoting from Isaiah 56.7, uh, which I believe is up there. Yeah, so Isaiah 56.7 says this. So this is talking um, about foreigners who have trusted in God, trusted in the one true God. Isaiah says this, these, these foreigners, I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So God's desire for the temple is that it would be a place where there were lots of languages that you would hear if you were to walk in or walk into the court of the Gentiles. Uh, but not lots of languages selling and buying things, lots of languages praying to the one true God. And now for the architectural lesson, uh, this, the temple was set up um, in these different zones. So you, you may know this, the very middle of the temple was the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go in there. And then as you worked your way out, 
uh, there were different zones that uh, certain people were and were not allowed to go into. So there are areas that just the priests could go into, areas where just Jewish men could be, areas for just women. And as you worked your way further and further out, the outermost section was called the Gentile court. And that was where anyone who wasn't Jewish was allowed to come and pray. So this is speaking about what Isaiah is talking about right here, a place for non-Jews to come and, and worship God. And this, the court of the Gentiles, was where all of the noisy buying and selling was taking place. This is where the market had been placed, which meant that all these non-Jewish believers in God really didn't have a place where they could go and pray to God because the Jewish leaders had decided to put this massive marketplace right where they were supposed to have their spot where they could pray, which it's distracting enough trying to pray um, in a quiet place, but if you imagine trying to pray next to a pigeon seller, I imagine, I just can't even actually imagine that that would be very effective at all. And that's why Jesus is angry. Jesus is jealous for the worship of the followers of all of these different nations. He's jealous for that worship. And what makes someone a part of God's family was not their ethnicity, not their background, anything else besides whether or not they have trusted in Jesus. That's it. And these religious leaders were trying to prevent people from other ethnicities and nationalities from being a part of the worship of God because they misunderstood what it meant to be one of God's people. It seems to be some kind of spiritualized version of, of racism, which is a form of the sin of partiality. And Jesus, in righteous anger, makes it very, very clear what God thinks about this kind of sin. There's no place for it among God's people. God welcomes the prayers of anyone who comes to him humbly and repenting of their sin. He's jealous for the worship of all the nations. Now there's one last quote from Jesus' words here. You notice Jesus says, instead of a house of prayer, you've made it into a den of robbers, which is an interesting phrase. Um, he's actually quoting another, another prophet here, Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 10 to 11 um, We'll read verse 11 in a moment. But Jeremiah is listing out all these evil things that the Jews have done. They're going out, they're stealing, they're, they're murdering, they're committing adultery. And then they come back to the temple um, and they come stand before the Lord and kind of like, okay, we're, we're safe here. <laughs> the authorities can't get to us in here. Um, this is the one place where we don't have to worry about all those things that we've just gone and done. And so Jeremiah 7, verse 11, this is the Lord speaking here. Has this house, speaking of the temple, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. So in other words, again, the, the temple was this place in, in the Jews' minds, of like this place of safety where they could kind of retreat back to, um, thinking that this was their safe zone because they were God's people and they didn't have to worry about these things they were doing like <laughs> stealing, uh, perhaps committing insurrection against the Roman government. This was the one place they could come and they didn't have to worry about the authorities getting to them. And they wanted the Gentile worshipers out of there. And it makes Jesus really angry. God's presence is a safe place for those who acknowledge that they are sinners and trust in God's mercy for their forgiveness. But God's presence is a very, very dangerous place for people who are acting like this. These temple leaders saw in Jesus, they thought he was just another man who was messing up their world, 
by calling out their flaws and their hypocrisy. And they had no interest in, in recognizing the sin that was inside of them. Now, if you're not sure what you think about Jesus, eventually, his teaching is likely going to offend you too if it hasn't already. You may find his standards too high, his standards too unrealistic. You'll be offended by what he has to say about your attempts to be a good person. Without Jesus as your Savior, your good works are worthless before God. Or perhaps you may have the same temptation as, as some of these Jews to kind of view your relationship with God as, as a way to excuse sin. Right? So if you follow Jesus, your salvation um, is not a free pass to live hypocritically, to commit all sorts of sins, sexual sin, gossip, uh, to worship your stuff, maybe shade the truth at work because that's just what people do. And then come to church each week and think that's fine. You're fine because Jesus is taking care of your sin and you don't have to worry about it. If that's your attitude towards God, that is dangerous. It's very dangerous for us to not recognize what Jesus done. It's a form of despising Jesus' sacrifice for us. And the anger Jesus shows here will be nothing like the wrath on the last judgment day against those who didn't live a life of repentance and who didn't seek God's mercy for their sin, who rejected Jesus. Now this section ends again with Jesus leaving the temple. And there's a, another, again, another moment of deep irony. that This temple was designed to host God's presence and there is no place for him to stay. No place for the Son of God to stay. So he leaves again with his disciples. He goes out and he begins to explain to them what has just happened. And so this is going to bring us to our last point. That Jesus has come to help us bear the fruit of faith. So let's read verses 20 through 25. Mark 11, verses 20 through 25. Now, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses." Now Mark's coming back again to the fig tree. Uh, he's doing essentially what, what some call like a, a sandwich, a literary sandwich. So it's fig tree, temple fig tree. Uh, so again, the, again, both are trying to, uh, both are meant to help us interpret one another. Uh, the fig tree, when Jesus came to it, had been fruitless. It had no fruit for its maker. And so it was cursed. The same was true for the temple. Jesus had come to the temple. He had found no fruit there. Just lots of busy religious activity, which might have looked good, like lots of leaves on a tree. But it masked the fact that there was no fruit there. And this leaves us with an important question. What is the kind of fruit that Jesus wants us to bear as his followers? And he's going to tell his disciples here in these verses that it's faith in God that leads to prayer and forgiveness. Now, there is a good chance you have heard uh, these verses used at some point to make the case that uh, you can do anything if you have enough faith and pray in the right way. 
You can have anything you want. You can, you can do anything you want. I have a good friend who's, uh, who's been living with a, a disability that keeps him from walking normally for pretty much his whole life, and he's had people tell him at, at many occasions, um, you, aren't, you must not have enough faith <laughs> uh, in order to, otherwise God would have healed you. And yet this man with his, with his, with his disability, with his faith, has, has shown Jesus to many, many people. It's a horrible thing. So we have to understand that what it is that Jesus is trying to say here. You've probably wondered about this first. I wonder what the disciples were thinking about it as they were sitting there. Now, most likely as they were sitting there, they were looking over at the temple. They were looking at the temple mount. The, the temple was built on this mount. And they were likely looking at it as Jesus was saying these things. And I, I do kind of wonder if any of them maybe like, went back and tried to kind of secretly move the mountain into the ocean and failed. They might have. I tried to do that as a kid. It didn't work. Um, he would regularly use, uh, the, 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 these disciples knew though that Jesus um, would often use physical realities to try to illustrate a, a different, uh, bigger spiritual reality for them. That's what's going on here. There's a few layers to this point that Jesus is making to his disciples. One of them, almost certainly, is that the time of the temple was over. The time of the temple was over. Jesus had just cursed the fig tree, um, he had, and he had passed judgment on the temple because it was no longer fulfilling its purpose. And now, if they were, in fact, looking at the temple mount, he was giving his disciples this very vivid picture of the temple being thrown into the sea which left an interesting conundrum for those who recognized the importance of the temple in their worship because the temple was where a lot of the activity, the sacrifices, things that would deal with their sin would take place. It was a really important part of Israel's worship. And so that left a a question like, how are we going to deal with our sin if that is the case? And we know that in a short period of time as Jesus took his last breath, the temple curtain that would cover the Holy of Holies was going to be split in two because through Jesus, the need for the temple was over. There was no more need for the temple because anyone who puts their faith in Jesus now can approach God directly through Jesus because his death covers the sins of his followers. That's how God dealt with the massive problem of our sin. And so we don't need the Levitical priests and sacrifices anymore. God's presence can now be found here among his people. We collectively, as the church, are the new temple. So we don't need the old temple building anymore. It was time for the temple. The time of the temple was over. There's another layer that's going on here that has to do with what Peter says to Jesus. Um, and if you notice in verse 21, Peter says, Peter says this, we just read it. Again, look down. Peter says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Now, uh, Peter catches a lot of grief for things that he says in the Gospels. He's going to catch a little more here. Um, and rightly so, often, uh, Jesus, uh, uh, Peter wants Jesus to see your curse worked, <laughs> which is kind of a, a funny thing to say to the, the God of the universe, right? The Son of God. Um, and this is the point that Jesus is about to make. <laughs> of course the curse worked. Um, this is Jesus. He's the one that made the f- tree in the first place. Have faith, disciples, in God. Now maybe you, you felt something similar to Peter here. You felt a surprise when God answers a prayer. 
maybe a surprise when he uh, does something that he promises to do in his word, providing for you in some way. The dark flip side of that is, is worrying each time situations come up where you need God's help, wondering if he will, in fact, be true to his promises. And Jesus is pointing out here that Peter's surprise is coming from, a, from um, a deficiency in his faith, a lack of faith. Peter's surprise comes from his lack of faith. Have faith in God, Jesus tells him. Of course the tree withered. Jesus is God, and faith in God then should lead us directly to prayer and to forgiveness. Ian e. Bounds once said that faith gives birth to prayer. It grows stronger, strikes deeper, rises higher in the struggles and wrestlings of mighty petitioning. Faith gives birth to prayer. I expect there's many of us here who need that reminder, that faith is what gives birth to prayer. I certainly do. Prayer is what happens when we realize and trust that God, in his sovereign wisdom, is capable of doing anything. But there is a degree of, of, of just absolute certainty in Jesus' words here that, that is difficult to understand. He says, if you believe that you have received it, it shall be yours, it will be yours. So it's an important question to answer. Is Jesus talking just kind of generally about anything that we might ask? Or is he talking specifically about something? Now again, keep in mind, in three chapters from now, Jesus is about to ask the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, he'll say this, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So we have to ask, did, did Jesus just not have enough faith in that moment? The answer is clearly no. That's not what was going on there. So what is going on here? Going back to what Ian Bounds says, faith gives birth to prayer, which means that faith precedes prayer. None of us are going to pray to Zeus, uh, hopefully, uh, because you have no faith in him or his existence. So you will not pray to him. But faith in the perfect, holy, almighty God drives us to speak with him and to recognize that we are not holy and that we have no place before a holy and almighty God. Sin is the real problem for us, and dealing with our sin is a massive, mountain-sized problem. And that is what Jesus came to resolve for his followers. If we do have faith in God and we recognize the depth of our sin, then we'll see that we don't have any hope for ourselves to be with the glorious God who made us. And it will take a mountain-sized miracle, like God's Son coming to earth to die in our place in order to bring us back to him. Now, this is not in any way meant to minimize God's ability to do physical miracles um, in response to prayer, to provide in what appear to be miraculous ways in response to prayer. It's through prayer that God stopped lions from eating Daniel. Uh, it's through prayer that, that uh, God has allowed humans to cast out demons in Jesus' name. There are countless, countless stories of God's people, men and women, who have seen God miraculously provide for their needs Always through prayer. Always through prayer. For food, for healing. Providing in his perfect timing for thousands and thousands of years. But I do believe that what Jesus is talking about here is that God is about to do an enormous, enormous miracle. He's going to make the temple unnecessary. 
And through faith in God, he will allow God's people to come to him through the death of Jesus. And it's through our faith in Jesus that we can come to God. It's not through the temple. Now there's one more related fruit of faith that Jesus is going to give his disciples here in verse 25, and that's the fruit of forgiveness. This this might seem a little bit out of the blue. (laughs) So uh, we have to ask, why is Jesus throwing this in here at the end? I believe it's because an unforgiving heart indicates that we, we don't understand how significant the forgiveness is that we've received if we are then unable to give it to others who have done smaller things against us. Jesus wants us to cultivate that understanding of our own debt by forgiving the smaller debts of the others around us who have hurt us and who we need to forgive. And these two things, prayer and forgiveness, have kind of this, this multiplying effect on one another and on our faith. The more we understand the depths of our sin, which Jesus suffered for our sake, the more we're going to understand the power of the God that we're praying to, which then will in turn help us to pray more fervently, which will then help us to extend forgiveness to others. So they kind of all build up one another. And that last phrase in verse 25, where Jesus is telling his disciples to forgive, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you. That question you might be wondering is, if, is forgiveness of others a prerequisite to being saved? The answer is no. We, we don't merit our salvation. But Doug O'Donnell says it like this. I think this is very helpful. The forgiveness of others is not a condition of salvation, but it is a consequence of it. Forgiveness of others is a consequence of our salvation. If you've trusted in Christ... He will be working in your heart so that over time you will be more and more and more fully understanding the depths of your own sin and what you were saved from. And then as a result, extend forgiveness as well to others. And so these these two things, prayer and forgiveness, are these two fruits of faith. And trees and fruit need to be tended and cultivated. Uh, This is what Jesus came to help cultivate in our hearts, part of what he has come to help us do. We we have to choose to practice these things. They're not just going to appear in our lives without without any cultivation. Faith leads to prayer and forgiveness, and choosing to pray and forgive will also help us to continue growing in our faith. Now, to return to that first question we asked at the start, um, who do you think Jesus is? Your answer is going to dictate very much how it is you receive Jesus. These Jewish pilgrims who were waving the palm branches thought he was a different kind of king than he actually is. And so they scattered at his arrest. The Jewish religious leaders thought Jesus was a regular man from the back country who was calling them hypocrites and sinners. They didn't think he was the son of God, and so they rejected him. The disciples claimed to believe in Jesus, and yet Peter was still surprised when he saw Jesus' miracles. And for all of us, whoever we think Jesus is is going to impact how we receive him. And so if we think he's a king who's going to solve our external issues only, then we're going to receive him in joy in the good times. But we're going to reject him in hard times. If we think he's a regular man, we're going to be offended by the way he calls out our sin. But if we recognize that he is the Son of God came to take away the sins of the world and we receive him as our Lord and Savior, then he will do miracles for you. Most importantly, he will save you and bring you to God. He will do that miracle for you. No temple required. Let's pray. Jesus, we are humbled 
as we see how humbly you came to us. And we realize that we are so prone to these same wrong views of you that we see in these people in our this chapter today. And so, Father, I ask for those here who are your children, we ask that you'd be at work causing more fruit of faith to grow in our lives. We want our faith in you to be strengthened. We want these fruits of prayer and forgiveness to abound in our lives. But we need your help to cultivate these things. And so, if there are those here who are sensing that their prayer is weak or they have people in their lives they need to forgive, we ask that you would help them to do so now. That those things would be growing in their lives. For those of you who aren't your children, I ask that you would, you would haunt them with that question of who is Jesus. I ask that you would cause them to see him as he truly is, as the Son of God, the Savior, and the King of the world. Jesus, we know that you came in this way preparing to die horribly for us. And so we ask this week that you would be preparing our hearts to remember and to worship you for your sacrifice. We pray these things in your name. Amen.